We're starting a series today called People, Places, and Things. If you were here last year, we did this same series last summer, and we enjoyed it so much, got so much good feedback from it, and really didn't feel like we got to exhaust all of the sermons we wanted to do for those two months, and so we're doing it again this year, and I'm really excited about it because my sermon today was one I really wanted to do last summer, but didn't get the opportunity to do it. So, uh, so we're going to do it today, and um, it's really, we're just talking about the people, places, and things that are in the Bible, then how it relates to God's character, and how that ultimately relates to us. So it's pretty simple, but uh, I think you're going to be blessed and challenged and encouraged over the summer months here at New Hope. So let us jump in to my text verse. I'm going to ask you to stand with me, if you would, as we read God's Word together. It'll be on the screen, or you can read it if you have brought a Bible. It's in Isaiah 46, verses 9 to 10. These are the words of God himself. He says, Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God, and there is no other. Can someone say amen? Amen. 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 I am God, and there is no one like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. The title of my message today is Living on Purpose. Would you pray with me, please? Our wonderful Heavenly Father, you are so good, and we thank you for this time we have together, Lord. God, what a blessing to come into the house and to be able to worship together and to dive into your word together. Father, I thank you today that your word does not return void. It is going to do the work it was set out to do, and I pray today that my words would be your words and that you and you alone would get all the glory. You are the only one that deserves it, God. We give it all to you for your glory and in your name, Jesus, that we pray. And everyone said, amen, amen. amen. God bless you. You can be seated. Thank the Lord. Thank God. Okay, so if you know your Bible at all, which I'm not going to assume you do, so if you don't, that's okay, because we're going to do some educating today as well. But, uh, but if you do know your Bible at all, you know that God has a purpose for your life. It's, it's all through the word that he has given us a purpose and, uh, and that you are not here by accident. There are no accidental children. There are no accidental humans. No matter how you were conceived and what circumstances or what you were, had to be brought up in or if you were abandoned or if, no matter what it is, you were not born by accident. God knew you. In fact, the Bible tells us that he knows us before we are in our mother's womb. So he had a plan and a purpose for you from day one. Before day one, actually. And he has, some of his purpose for us is the same across the board in, in respects to how our, our relationship with him, our relationship with others, and even for ourselves. In our relationship with him, our purpose is to know him, to love him, to live for him, to build his kingdom together. And that's the same across the board for all of us. Now, how that outworks in your life is different for some than it is for others. It's not all exactly gonna look the same, but the, the plan is the same. And then for others, we all, some of, we all have some of the same purpose in our life for others, that we are called to love others, to serve others, to do good to others, to forgive others, that that's God's purpose for our life. Now, again, the outworking of that will look different in our life depending on our life, but the bottom line is those things. And even it, with ourselves, his purpose for us is, some of it is the same across the board. We're all, he, his plan for us all is that we would have the fruit of the Spirit in our life that we would engage with him, that we would know him and his spirit would live in us and that we would have that fruit in our life and that we would live to build his kingdom. Again, the outworking of it might look different, but the purposes he has, a lot of his purpose is the same for all of us. But there's also purpose that he has for you and me as individuals. 
that are going to look different than other people. He has a plan and a purpose for each one of us. And the Bible, that, what I just read in Isaiah, tells us that his purpose will stand. So his purpose for your life is secure. It is what it's supposed to be. And it will be what he has planned for you for the most part. And so we all have some parts of our own life that my purpose is a little different than yours. For instance, my purpose is to, uh, to be a good husband and to serve my, my wife. Now yours would be the same for your spouse too, but your, your purpose isn't to serve and be a good husband to my wife, <laughs> it's to be to yours. And, and for me to raise my kids in such a way that they have every opportunity and every reason to want to know Jesus and live for Jesus in their life, right? And also for me, it's to be the pastor of this great church. Right? I, I know without a shadow of a doubt that God, part of his purpose for my life from before I was in my mother's womb was to eventually be the pastor of this church one day. And I'm blessed and thankful for it. And I don't deserve it. It was just because it was in his plan that this would happen. So I have things in my life that are things God has called me to and you have some things that God has called you to that he has purpose for you that aren't the same as they are for me. Right? So we established that and the reality is that we are all set up to succeed in God's purpose for our life. We are set up to succeed, not because we're smart enough or intelligent enough or educated enough or good enough. We're set up to succeed because of what Jesus did for us. Because of Jesus' work on the cross, on his life on earth and on the cross and his resurrection, we are set up to succeed for the purpose God has for us because he has called us into a personal relationship with him and to fulfill that purpose in our life. And it's been said, but it is worth repeating for sure, there is only one thing in all the universe that can derail God's purpose for your life. One thing. It's not Satan. It's not your circumstances or your situation that you find yourself in. And it's not even other people. The only thing that can derail God's purpose for your life is your response to Satan, to your circumstances, and to other people in your life. That's the only thing in all the universe that can derail your purpose for your life. It is crystal clear. And here's the thing. Your enemy, the enemy of your soul, he knows this. You know, the Bible says he's like a roaring lion looking for who he can devour. Well, we get this visual of Satan as being this lion that's roaring around, and if I'm not careful, he's gonna pounce on me and devour me, right? That's not really what it means there. What he's saying is he's looking for someone to devour, but he doesn't maul us like a regular lion would in the natural realm. What he's doing is he's looking for those situations that we can be put in where it exposes our weakness, where our response is less than what God would want for us, causing our purpose in life to be derailed. That's what he does. That's the devouring he does in our life. He makes us our own worst enemy. He causes us to respond in ways that, can, that keep us from being on the path that God has for us, but in veering off that path. Now, to the glory of God, and because he is so amazing and so wonderful, when we veer off that path, he can always bring us back. We can always come back. So it's not like we have this pressure that, oh my goodness, I have to respond perfectly in every situation or I'm gonna miss God's plan for my life. That's not anything close to what the truth of the word of God is. But the reality is he can, we can get off of the path because of our responses and if we aren't smart enough and in tune enough and we don't let pride, if we let enough pride in our life, we can completely stay off that path and never get back. We can miss God's purpose for our life. You know that? You can miss it. Lots and lots and lots of people do. What's the percentage of Christians in the United States? Probably 16, 17, maybe 20% at best. I, I don't think God's purpose for 80% of the United States is that they are not gonna be with him, right? So lots and lots of people miss 
their purpose in life because of how they respond to the things in their life. So we established that. I want to make sure that I, I get that in, in you before we move on because we need to know the tactics of the enemy. And if I can challenge you today in anything, my challenge is do not take his bait. Don't take the bait of your enemy because his desire is to keep you from fulfilling that purpose. And to live in our purpose, we have to be intentional. That's why I titled my message, Living on Purpose. Because we have to make sure that we are being intentional about our lives. You are not some, some random set of molecules and atoms floating around here. You have a purpose in your life that God has designed for each and every one of you. So, that being said, in the, in the vein of people, places, and things, I wanna talk to you today about some people that were in the Bible. It's a story out of 2 Kings, and uh, it's a wonderful story. Many of you probably have heard it. Uh, maybe, you, maybe you know it well. Maybe some of you need a refresher. Maybe some of you have never heard it. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of go through the whole thing and the rest of my time that I have with you today. And, uh, but before I read the verse, I want to set it up. Um, it's in 2 Kings 7, if you have a Bible and want to open up to it. But, so this is a time in history where Israel, they become a nation. They've already had some kings. And they, they became split. They had a civil war. They split as a nation. They had the northern kingdom. The capital of the northern kingdom was Samaria. And they had the southern kingdom, which was called Judah. And their capital was Jerusalem. And uh, this, this scene here is, in, is about the northern kingdom. It was, they had turned their backs on God. They completely turned their backs. In fact, God had warned them in the law back when Moses was still alive that if you serve me and you follow me, I'll bless you. But if you don't, these are some of the things that are going to happen to you. And the things that were prophesied back in that time were coming to pass in this current season. They are in their city of Samaria. It's walled up. All the cities back then had walls to fortify it, to keep them safe. And the Syrians, also called the Arameans, came and they wanted to take over the city. And so a common tactic back then in warfare was to not necessarily go into the city because you'd be more vulnerable because you're going onto their turf. They would surround the city with their army so that nothing could go in and nothing could come out. And it would be a waiting game. They would wait to starve them out, get them to where they were so desperate that they would just finally put up their hands and say, okay, we give up, you can have it. And uh, so they've been doing this, and these seasons were known to go on for quite some time. In fact, this one had been going on for almost three years when we get to the story here in 2 Kings. Three years that no one was able to leave their city. So you can imagine the famine they were dealing with. And how I mentioned how Moses said in Deuteronomy that certain things were going to happen and these things were coming to pass. One of the most uh, horrifying stories, situations, examples in the whole Bible takes place in this setting. It's actually in the chapter before, it's in chapter six, where two women, they're starving they're, to the Israelites. They were such bad shape. They made an agreement. They both had babies. And they said, today we're gonna eat my baby and tomorrow we'll eat yours. That's how bad it got. And you can go back to Deuteronomy and see that actually that's exactly what God said through Moses, that if you don't follow me and listen to my decrees, people are going to seize your city and this is what's going to happen. You're going to eat your own children. So the first day they do it. They eat the one woman's child. And the next day when the other one was supposed to give up her, she refused. And so this story, this, this situation came before the king. And the king was so distraught. He said, oh my gosh, we've come to this now. We're actually eating our own. And so he went to Elisha. Elisha was the prophet at the time, one of the few men of God in Israel at the time. And Elijah spoke to them the word of God. And he said, tomorrow at this time, uh, flour and barley are gonna sell for one siah, is what it was, a unit of measure, okay? It was gonna sell very cheap at this, by this time tomorrow. Basically saying God's gonna deliver us. 
And the officer that was with the king, when Elisha said this, the officer looked at Elisha and said, really? He said, if, if God should open the heavens and open the floodgates, how could that happen? And Elisha responded by saying, well, actually it is gonna happen, but because of your attitude, you're not gonna see it. And um, I'll get into that a little later, because uh, he was right. But uh, so we got this situation where they're under siege and it's as bad as it could possibly get. So that's where we're gonna pick up our story in 2 Kings 7. There's four lepers that were living in the city gate. Lepers, anybody had leprosy, was completely ostracized from the community, it was very contagious. You couldn't live among the people, so they'd have their own little areas where they were allowed to live and they had to stay there. They were living at the city gate all by themselves and they were suffering just as much as everybody else. So here's what we see happens in uh, verses three to eight. Let's read this together. Now, there were four men with leprosy at the entrance of the city gate. They said to each other, why stay here until we die? If we say, we'll go into the city, the famine is there and we will die. If we stay here, we will die. So let's go over to the camp of the Arameans and surrender. If they spare us, we live. If they kill us, then we die. So basically they're saying, hey, we got nothing to lose. If we stay here, we're gonna die. We're going to the city, we're gonna die. Only shot we got is to go over here to the Arameans. They had nothing to lose, so they went ahead and decided to go do it. At dusk, they got up and went to the camp of the Arameans. When they reached the edge of the camp, not a man was there. For the Lord had caused the Arameans to hear the sound of chariots and horses and a great army, so that they said to one another, look, the king of Israel has hired Hittite and Egyptian kings to attack us. So they got up and fled in the dusk and abandoned their tents and their horses and donkeys. They left the camp as it was and ran for their lives. The men who had leprosy reached the edge of the camp and entered one of the tents. They ate and drank and carried away silver, gold, and clothes and went off and hid them. They returned and entered another tent and took some things from it and hid them also. So this is the first part of the story. You see that they went in because they realized we had nothing to lose and they went in and God made their footsteps sound like two huge armies from the Hittites and the Egyptians, so much so that the whole Syrian army fled as fast as they could get out of there. And they get to the camp and they realize, oh my goodness, this place is empty. And they started chowing down. I mean, they had a feast of feasts. And on top of that, there was clothes, and there was gold and silver. Like this was beyond their wildest dreams that they got to experience this. And so what I wanna look at throughout this, this chapter is three responses that we see from people that goes to our purpose and why it's so important that we respond well to fulfill God's purpose for our life. So this first one is the response to desperation. These leprous men were desperate. I mean, you can imagine. They're, they're the downcast of the downcast and then on top of that, there's no food. They were probably getting tiny little scraps just enough to keep them alive. They were desperate. And so, you know they were probably sitting there complaining every day and thinking, oh, what are we gonna do? This is getting worse and worse and worse, we're gonna die. And suddenly, one of them had a realization. And he said it very clearly. Why stay here until we die? Suddenly they realized, we're just sitting around doing nothing, nothing's going to change. And if we stay here, we're gonna die. If we go into the city, we're gonna die. Let's go and throw ourselves at the mercy of these Syrians and see what happens. And suddenly, because they had that thought, they had hope. Because suddenly they realized they had an option. You know at that point, they, they probably got a little more strength in them than they had the days before, and they realized, hey, it might be a shot in the dark, but at least it's a shot. And they had some hope. 
And because they had this hope, it stirred them up and they were able to actually go into the camp. Now, what does this mean for us today? Well, I think that, I think it's a foregone conclusion that most of us in some area of our life have some desperation. Whether it's financial, whether it's emotional, whether it's relational, physical, most people right nowadays have some level of desperation where we just feel like, what are we gonna do? What am I gonna do? And the beauty of this story shows us that we have an option. And we have to get to a place where we ask ourselves in our desperation, am I just gonna stay here until I die? Am I gonna stay here until I die or am I going to do something? How do we respond to desperation in our life? Do we just stay there and complain? Or do we actually look at our situation and say, what can be done? And I could tell you, if you are just staying where you are, you're really just waiting to die. And that's not God's purpose for your life. That's not God's plan for your life. You have a purpose, and it is not to just sit around until you die. Some of us can think like, oh, this is just my lot in life. You know, I'm just, I'm just suffering, and it's just, that's what God wants me to do, I guess. You know, I'm just gonna have to suffer and, and just kind of hope for the best but I'm just gonna sit here hoping for the best. If those four lepers would have just sat there hoping for the best, they would have died. They had to do something. They had to respond to their desperation in such a way that would help fulfill the purpose that God had for their life. And it's no different for you and me. If they were brought to a place where they realized something has to change. And I bet many of you have said that over the last few weeks or months. Something has got to change. And there is some beautiful truth in this, just this part of the passage, some life lessons I think that we can learn from this. And the first one is that when things are at their worst, this is the time to step out in faith. When things are at their worst, when we are desperate, that is the time for us to step out in faith. The irony of that is the way we're wired as humans, that is the time we least want to step out in faith, right? It's a lot easier to step out in faith when we're basking in the faithfulness of God, we get this windfall from God. It's like, well, now I can share. You know, I'm, I'm blessed to be a blessing, right? That's when it's easier to step out in faith because we're just kind of doing the overflow of what we already have. But when you step out in faith when you're already empty, that's a whole nother thing. That's a lot more difficult in life. But it is so important at these times that we do step out. Because remember what I said, our circumstances cannot derail our purpose, but our responses can. And there's no guarantee if we just sit tight that all of a sudden everything is just gonna work out. And whether it's, if it's something in a, in a relationship where, where you, you feel desperate, that's the time to step out. That's the time to, to step out and forgive. That's the time to step out and, and maybe have to let go. That's the time to step out and maybe have to confront a situation with someone that you're scared to do where you're stepping out in faith even though you feel like you're empty. Or if it's something with your emotions, you know, you're dealing with fear and you're so afraid, stepping out just looks like coming in the opposite spirit. You're doing, you're doing it even though you're afraid. You know, if, if you gotta do it afraid, do it afraid, but do it. Because it's the times that we are the most desperate that it is the most important for us to step out in faith. And what we learn from that is when we do step out, God beats us. Now that's a promise. When we step out, God 
will meet us. Now, it doesn't always look like we think it'll look. It's not always gonna look like it looked for these four lepers, where they went in and they, it was, the result was beyond their wildest dreams. And it was worthy of putting in the Bible for generations to see, okay? That's not how it's gonna be every time for us when we step out and God meets us. But I can guarantee you, he is going to meet you in that place. And see, the thing is, we're hardwired to think about risk when it comes to, well, if I do step out, what if, dot, dot, dot. What if it doesn't happen the way I think it should have happened? What if it backfires in my face? What if, what if, what if? We're hardwired to think like that, to, to risk assess when it comes to stepping out, right? Now, that's not just in our spiritual faith, that's in anything, right? And the older you get, the more you assess risk, you know? When I was 20 years old, I'd have jumped out of an airplane with a parachute, no problem. Today, mmm. I don't know, that would be a pretty rough last two minutes if it didn't open, right? And so you risk assess, like what, what if, what if? So we're wired for that. The problem is we're not really wired to risk assess what it looks like to stay here until I die. See, a lot of times we get this really wacky, outrageous, toxic comfort zone of staying here until I die. It can become a comfort zone. The lepers sitting at the city gate dying and itching and scratching and having barely any food, that can be a comfort zone because at least I know what to expect. If I step out, I don't know what's gonna happen. And I, I'd rather just die slowly than go out there and maybe have them cut my head off, right? So we don't risk assess what it looks like to stay here until I die. And we need to because God meets us when we step out. Now, can God meet us if I stay here too? If he tells you to. Absolutely. But I can tell you more often than not, he's telling us to do something. He's telling us to step out because you know what? God actually wants to partner with us. He actually wants to partner with us. It's still all about him. He still gets all the glory, but he used these guys' footsteps to make it seem like a lot more was happening than it really was, which brings me to the next one. The Lord uses our steps of faith to push out the enemy. The Lord uses our steps of faith to push out the enemy. You see, stepping out in faith can make you feel like you're on a collision course with your enemy, right? Whether, whatever it is, relationally, financially, whatever it is, you could feel like if I step out, okay, but man, I'm on a collision course with my enemy. And sometimes you are, but sometimes your steps of faith, God will amplify those steps in such a way that it'll sound like an army's coming and your enemy will be nowhere in sight when you get to where you need to be. That's what God can do. He did it for these guys. Why couldn't he do it for us? We're seeing the character of God in this story, okay? And it's a challenge for us, it's encouraging for us to know that when we step out, God uses our obedience to help push out the work of the enemy in our life. It's such a beautiful truth that we can so often miss in our life. You know, if these, if these guys didn't step out, the enemy would have stayed where they were and everybody would have died. Now, could God have done some other route to try to, to, to save them anyway? Of course he could have, but this was the plan he had. So it was imperative that these guys responded in that way. And I fear if we, if we were to drop the modern church into this story and the modern church was sitting at the city gate and we were desperate and less leprous and, and, and needing something desperately, I fear that we as the modern church would have sat there and complained a lot and prayed a little. And said, oh God, do your thing and wait for this fireball to come out of the sky to consume the Syrian army. 
But let me tell you something. We don't have to follow the church trends. We don't have to follow the crowd. If the church is going the wrong direction, we don't have to follow that, right? Because that's not God's plan for us. We are to be an active, living, bold church that is moving forward, that is showcasing the goodness and the faithfulness of God through his people. That's what we're designed to be, right? And that's what God wants for each and every one of us. So, so don't go by the default and just say, well, I'll just sit here and wait. God's gonna work it out. God's gonna, he's gonna fix my marriage. I, I'm just praying. He's gonna fix my marriage. When the reality is, he might want you to step out. He might want you to serve your spouse even though you don't think they deserve it or, to, or do above and beyond what your spouse does not deserve and see how the Lord uses that to push the enemy out of your marriage. Or if you're struggling financially and you're just praying, asking God, God, just open the floodgates, bring some money and you're checking your phone every once in a while on your banking app to see if he's dropping money in your account. And the reality is God might be saying, I want you to step out in faith. I want you to step out in generosity, even though you have need, sow, you, sow some seed somewhere and see what I can do through that. See if I can't push off the devourer off of your finances and do more than you ever dreamed I could do. Now listen, this is not some ploy to get you to give money to the church. I don't care where you give it, because I know my God's gonna take care of this church. But I'm telling you, you can sow generosity into a family member, into a neighbor, into somebody on the street, whatever. But when we are desperate, that's the time for us to step out. I'm not saying if you're down to your last $100, you need to give all $100 away. You can do generous things without completely emptying everything. Don't be ridiculous unless God says to do it. But I can tell you in my life, before I was married and now since I'm married, I can name five times off the top of my head where I had financial need, where I was freaking out, probably more freaking out than I should have been, and God said, sow some seeds, sow some generosity. I did it, God provided, and built my faith in the midst of it. That's what he does. That's who he is. So we respond to desperation by stepping out. And let me say this. You might be sitting here today and say, well, I'm not desperate. My finances are good, my marriage is good, my emotions are good, my health is good, I'm good. Can I tell you, spiritually, you're desperate. We're all desperate spiritually. Spiritually, we are all leprous, starving people sitting at a city gate wondering what we're gonna do. Without Jesus, we're all dying. That is the only answer for us. And let me tell you, the ones that are growing in their faith, if you're growing in your faith today, then you understand that because you understand how desperate you are. We're not just desperate for a savior on day one of our salvation and then we're good to go. It's not a prayer you pray at an altar praying the sinner's prayer and you're good to go and now you're not desperate every, anymore. You're desperate every minute of every day for the rest of your life for Jesus. You're desperate. Whether you know it or not, you're desperate for him. And it's the ones that know it that are growing in their faith because desperation will draw you to the word. It'll draw you to growing in your faith. It'll draw you into that relationship with him. When I feel like, ah, I don't really need him. I, he saved me, but that's about all I need right now. Then you really don't get it because we are all spiritually desperate. And it's important that we step out even in our spiritual desperation. All right, so I want to continue reading this, this chapter. I'm going to go into verse 9. So they went into the tent. They got everything they needed. They're excited. They're throwing a party. It's like, it's like Golden Corral on steroids. I mean, there's food everywhere, okay? And so now we're going to verse 9. He says, then they said to each other, we're not doing right. This is a day of good news, and we are keeping it to ourselves. If we wait until daylight, punishment will overtake us. Let's go at once and report this to the royal palace. So they went and called out to the city gatekeepers and told them, we went into the Aramean camp and not a man was there, not a sound of anyone, only tethered horses and donkeys, and the tents just left just as they were. The gatekeepers shouted the news and it was reported within the palace. 
So this is the response that the lepers had when they got everything they wanted and everything they could ever need. The response was to the duty that we have as people that have experienced that, okay? This is actually an incredible depiction of the gospel, this story. You know, Jesus is all through the Old Testament. His name's not mentioned one time, but he's all over it. Because everything in the Old Testament is pointing us to the Jesus of the New Testament, and in the stuff, the Jesus in the New Testament, we can look back and see that he's all through it. This is a, the story of the gospel. This is the good news that they were saying. This is the good news, that you had these guys, this is us, think about this, this is us. Leprous, diseased, outcast, spiritually speaking. Spiritually outcast, leprous, diseased, starving, dying under siege by our enemy. And we go into the enemy's camp. And not only did they not kill us, not only did we just get mercy, we got the grace on top of it. We got everything we needed. We got everything we needed to bring us out of this state of complete and utter devastation. And not only that, it was more than we need. There's enough to go around for everybody. And so we're those people, and we're, we're feasting on the goodness of God and on the, the faithfulness of God and on all of his wonderful things that he does in our life, and we're just feasting on it, and we're taking some, and we're even hiding it for later. The reality is we need a wake-up call to know, wait a minute, there's a whole city out there that's starving to death, and here we are hoarding everything. They said, this is not good what we're doing. He said, we're not doing right. This is a day of good news, and we're keeping it to ourselves. Let's go at once and report this to the royal palace. The purpose of our life is to share what we have been given. Freely given, freely received, freely give. That is the plan for us as followers of Jesus. And I know this is where a lot of people, they kind of want to get off the train. Like, oh shoot, this is where you're gonna start talking about sharing my faith with my friends and my family and my neighbors and my cousins and, and all of them. And eh, I don't like that. And, and like this is the time to pull out your phone and start surfing Instagram, right? I, I, please keep, keep your eyes right here because this is so vitally important for us. We as the church, the Western church, frankly all the church, we have lost, our, we have got off track for the purpose God has given us when it comes to reaching and giving people the spiritual food that they so desperately need. We have lost our way, church. We have lost our way. We are losing ground. We're seeing it all over society. We're seeing it in social areas. And what we're doing is instead of, instead of fighting the battle the way we should, we're fighting the social battles. We don't need to fight social battles. We fight kingdom battles because when we win the kingdom battles, it'll affect the social battles. That's what we need to do. But we're not fighting the kingdom battles, church. We're not fighting the kingdom battles. We're leaving that to somebody else, to somebody that wears a suit on Sundays. We're leaving it to them. Let me tell you, it is for all of us. And I know that it's a challenge. I know that it's, it can be awkward to have these conversations with people, but you know what? You don't have to be a, a theologian to be able to share your faith with someone. You don't have to beat, your, beat them over the head with your Bible. You can just say, look, can I just tell you what God's done in my life? Let me just tell you what he's done. You can take it or leave it. But I know what he's done in me, and that testifies to the goodness of God, all right? If nothing else, invite them to church. We want this church to be full of people that are far from God. Like that's part of the vision of who we are. That's, what, that's why we're here. It's not just so we can fill this place up with Christians so we can, talk, we can sit here and eat our food all the time and rejoice in it and say, whoo, this is great, but so that we can take the food to the others that need it so desperately. And I know the excuses. Well, this isn't the same thing because, you know, these guys, like the, the people in Samaria, they knew they were starving. They knew they needed food. So if food was taken to them, they would have gobbled it up, right? People today don't know they're spiritually starving, right? 
And so not only that, I don't know how to give them this kind of food. If it was meat and potatoes, I could take them a plate. But I don't know how to give them spiritual food. I don't really know my Bible that well. I don't, I don't know what to say. What if they start asking questions and I don't know the answer, right? And so we overcomplicate it, we make excuses, and we just do nothing. I've heard so many times from people, well, you know, I, mean, I really want to share my faith with you know, my brother-in-law or my coworker or whatever, but I don't want to run them off. Can I tell you guys something? They're already off. They're off. If they're not on the path of salvation, they're off. It's not really that we're so worried about running them off from the path of salvation. It's more, we're more worried about what they're going to think about us and how it will affect our relationship with them. We have got to get to a place where we are more concerned about people's eternity than we are concerned about what they think about us. We have to get there, church. We have to get there. And listen, I know, I know, I know, I know that it is so easy for me to stand on a stage on Sunday morning and preach this to you guys, and you guys be like, yes. And, it, and then you walk out of here and you're like, mm, that's awkward. How do I do it, right? I get it. But listen, if we are determined, if the, if the core value in our life is to avoid all awkward situations, you're never gonna be able to do it. There's gonna be awkward situations. You're gonna invite somebody to church, and you know what they're gonna do? I've invited people to church, and they said, oh yeah, 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 I'll meet you. And I've stood out in the atrium, waited for them, never showed up. You know how awkward that next conversation is? Because they come up with excuses like, like I had five flat tires on my car. I mean, anything just to get past the awkwardness, you know? It's gonna happen. It is, it's just gonna happen. But when we really understand and we see that the people that are far from God, that are not followers and disciples of Jesus, that they are in this walled city starving to death, then it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it's a little awkward. I mean, God bless us, let's just be given to the awkwardness. Let's just tell people what God's done in our life. And we don't have to be the weird, uh, you know, obnoxious, aggressive, Christian that makes everybody repel from them as soon as you walk in the room, but we can at least, we can just talk about what God's done in our life and say, man, you got to come to my church. My pastor is amazing. <laughs> That's not really what I meant, but uh, <laughs> um, mm, now I'm off my notes. But they responded to the duty that we have as followers. There is none of us that don't have that responsibility in our life. It is not a job for pastors. It is not a job for evangelists. It is not a job for the well-informed and the very knowledgeable of the word of God. It is for anyone who calls themselves a follower of Jesus. It is part of the responsibility that we have. And can I tell you, let me just say with this, I think so often we just have such a distorted view of even how the church is meant to look in our life. Right? I've said this many times. I don't think I came up with it, but I, I, I don't remember where I heard it, but when you sign on to faith in Jesus, when you say yes to Jesus, you're joining an army. We're the army of God. You're joining a battleship. Okay, the church is a battleship. It is not a cruise ship. It is not meant for us to kick back and sip on our spiritual sweet tea and eat our spiritual lobster tails until we can't eat anymore. Okay, that is not what this is meant to be. It is meant to be a battleship. We are in an, arm, we are in an army and we are in a fight for souls. And it is, it is upon every one of us as followers of Jesus to take on that call in our life. Every one of us. And, I, and we understand that to some degree because we understand, most of us understand that our workplace is a battleship, right? That's definitely not a cruise ship. You're having to work your tail off, you're getting up early, you're working long hours, you got a boss that's impossible to please, you got coworkers that are driving you crazy, and it, it's, it's tough to get all, make all your ends meet. So you know work is not a time to kick back and relax. It is a battleship. 
You know, school is somewhat of a battleship. You know, you're going in there, you're fighting to get good grades, you got mean teachers, you got teachers that don't care, you got peer pressure with students, and you got all the things that are happening. It's a battleship. We don't relax in that setting. And even at home, to a degree, it's a battleship because we're fighting for our families. We're fighting to, that our kids would know Jesus and, and be good, productive members of society. Marriage is a battleship. It just is. I mean, I, I got a wonderful marriage. I love my wife to death, but man, we don't kick back and just talk about how awesome we are. We work and we work through situations. That's the only way it's going to be good. So all these things are battleships in life. And then we come into church and the tendency is to go, ah, bring me the sweet tea, lobster tail, prime rib, medium rare, more of it. Keep it coming and just sitting back. And this is my place to get fed. This is my place where I can you know, just enjoy, and I don't I could just sit and be a consumer and a partaker of the service. Listen, that's definitely part of it. We want you to come in, we want you to be fed, we want you to be blessed in this place, but that is a piece of the pie, that is not the whole pie, okay? The church, not this church, I'm talking about the church, the life of faith is a battleship, and we have to see it as that. We have to change our perspective and understand that it is upon us to help fulfill the Great Commission. It is upon us to help build the kingdom of God. Jesus said to pray that his kingdom would come and his will would be done, and oh, by the way, get involved in it, okay? It's not for 10% of the church to do all the work. It's for all of us to do it together, to help change our society and make it more about Jesus. This is your purpose. Okay, let me go to the last one here. I'm gonna read this last portion of scripture. Verses 12 to 16, it says, the king, the king got up then in the middle of the night, this is after they announced it, that hey, the Ar Arameans are gone. They told the king, king got up in the middle of the night and he said to his officers, I will tell you what the Arameans have done to us. They know we're starving, so they've left the camp to hide in the countryside, thinking they'll surely come out, and then we will take them alive and get into the city. One of his officers answered, have some men take five of the horses that are left in the city. Their plight will be like that of all the other Israelites left here. Yes, they will only be like all these Israelites who are doomed. So let us send them out to find out what happened. So they told the king, let's send some chariots out to follow, find the army where they actually are and see what is really going on and see if they're getting ready to ambush us, okay? So they selected two chariots with their horses and the king sent them after the Aramean army. He commanded the drivers, go and find out what has happened. They followed them as far as the Jordan and they found the whole road strewn with clothing and equipment the Arameans had thrown away in their headlong flight, running away from four lepers. Pretty incredible. So the messengers returned and reported to the king. Then the people went out and plundered the camp of the Arameans. So a siah of flour sold for a shekel and two siahs of barley sold for a shekel as the Lord had said, which was in the previous chapter of this verse when he told this officer that this is what's gonna happen and you're not gonna see it. And so this part here is about our response to doubt. There's a lot of doubt happening in this passage. There was doubt with the lepers when they actually finally went into the army's, the enemy's camp. They didn't know what was gonna happen. They had lots of doubts, but they stepped out anyway. God met them and they were rewarded for it, right? The king had doubts when they said, oh, they're gone. The king said, ah, they're probably just sitting around ready to ambush us. But he sent out officers to verify, found out they were gone. He was rewarded for it. Got to enjoy the, 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 uh, the pleasantries and the all the food and everything that was left for him, okay? So then you got this officer, who I didn't read about, but I'm telling you about. He's the one that said this couldn't happen. So when everybody was told that, hey, it actually is true, we can go into the camp and take all their food and we're gonna be fine, praise God, it's all over. They, they stormed through the city gate to go into the Syrians' camp to get everything. 
that officer was manning the gate at the time. And it says in the Bible, a few verses after this, it says that he was trampled to death. So Elisha's prophecy came true. The stuff did sell for what he said it was going to sell for. And that officer didn't see it because he was trampled. He doubted too, but he didn't doubt the other things. He doubted God and he paid the heavy price for it. Now, listen, there's always going to be doubt in life. Everyone deals with doubt. In fact, if anybody tells you they never have any doubt about their faith, uh, they, they probably don't have a really strong sense of reality because doubt is something that all of us have to deal with in our life in some way, some form, in some fashion. On the, on the spectrum of all the emotions, all the thoughts, all the feelings we have in life, right? You got happiness and sadness. You got anger. You got indifference. You got passion. You got confusion and understanding, right? Then you have faith and doubt, okay? And listen, doubt is always going to be in the boardroom of your life. It's always going to be at the table, but you don't have to give it a vote. It doesn't have to have a say in what you do. It's going to be there. It's just because until we're fully redeemed, until we are fully a part of the family of God, when we are face to face with Jesus, it's going to be part of what we have to deal with in our life. It's always going to be around, but you don't have to let it have its way. And I want to encourage you today in this, because I think this can be freeing for some of us. Don't spend your life trying to eliminate doubt out of your life. Because in some ways, it's like taking a bucket and bailing water out of a boat with a hole in it. You just, you get rid of it, it's just gonna keep coming back, right? The key here is to learn to recognize doubt, to recognize where it comes from and learn how to shut it up, okay? It's not about getting rid of it, because I mean, it doesn't matter what happens, there's going to be doubt coming, hitting you in your life. I mean, John the Baptist literally baptized Jesus, saw a dove descend on him like the Holy Spirit, and heard a voice from heaven Say, this is my son whom I'm well pleased. When, he was, when John the Baptist went to prison, he sent his disciples to ask Jesus, hey, are you really the one? How can you doubt that? I, I mean, a voice from heaven, seriously? How can you doubt that? It wasn't like they had big sound systems back then and somebody could have faked it. You know, it was the real deal, yet he even had doubt. Doubt's going to be there. We don't spend our life trying to get rid of it. We spend our life trying to silence it when it comes to us and not give it a vote. I can tell you, I mean, I'm not too proud to tell you that I deal with doubt. In my faith, I deal with doubt. Pretty consistently, actually, if I'm honest. And the times that I'm gonna deal with it mostly is Friday, Saturday. Those are my two heavy study days where I'm getting ready for Sunday. Those are the days I finish up my sermon. And I'm sitting there and I'm going through it, and especially if I'm struggling through it, and I start having thoughts like, oh, is this even real? Is anybody gonna come to church Sunday? Why would anybody come back to our church? <laughs> I guess because I'm a great pastor, right? I'm just kidding. Just, no, 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 no. That was a bad joke. No, but, but I have these, I'll struggle with these doubts and I'll, I'll, I'll even get in my head sometimes. I've even called joy at times. I've been like, mm. and, and listen, I've had powerful manifestations of God in my life. I've had times where I literally said out of my mouth, God, I will never doubt you again. And I almost felt like God was like, oh, you're cute. Because they just, it just comes, right? But here's what I have learned for me, and I'm gonna give you this. It's, it's not a formula, but it is something that I think is so huge for us to learn how to manage doubt in our life. What I do to defeat it when it comes at me like that is I look at where I was and where I am. And then doubt just kind of has to phase away. 
Because when I think back to where I was as a punk teenager that had no purpose in life and it was aimless and didn't know what I was doing, and then I get to my 20s and I thought I knew everything in life, and then I got to 30s and realized I didn't know much, and now I'm in my 40s and I realize I know nothing, I don't know what's gonna happen in my 50s. Maybe you go backwards. Somebody in your 50s is gonna to have to tell me. But, um, but when I look at the progression of my life and see where the Lord has brought me, see where he's been faithful, to see where he has been so unbelievably amazing in my life, I know enough to know that me, a teenage, didn't just buckle up my bootstraps and get to where I am today. I know that the only way that I even have any knowledge, any wisdom, any understanding of the word of God is because of what he does in my heart. The Bible's clear about that, that we can't even come to him unless the Spirit draws us. So the fact that I'm even drawn to God tells me, well, the Holy Spirit's gotta be real, right? And so that, what that does, that starts stirring up the faith. And suddenly the doubt, you put a muzzle on that doubt and telling it to shut up. Now, it doesn't go away. He figures out a way to take that muzzle off, usually by the next day, and starts coming at, it, at you again, right? But we don't give in to the doubt. And when we, when we are dealing with situations where we're desperate, where we're, uh, where we're in situations where we need God to move, doubt is always going to step in. It's gonna to try to keep you from stepping out of faith. It's gonna to try to keep you from walking in the purpose that God has for you. But I can tell you his purpose for you is so wonderful. It is so amazing, not just for you to be amazing, but his plans for your good because he wants to bless you and he wants to use you to further his kingdom. I'm not a prosperity gospel preacher. In fact, I detest the prosperity gospel, but I also know God's really, really good. And I know the Bible says he's a good father. I'm a father and I, I wanna do good things for my kids, so how much more does he wanna do that? So he still does want us to have good purpose and good blessings in our life, and we can trust that, and we can believe that, but we've gotta stay on the path that his purpose is for us. Would you stand with me, please? I wanna to close today by reading my text verse again so we can be reminded of it today. Psalm 46, I'm sorry, Isaiah 46, nine to 10. Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. His purpose will stand in your life. It's all about how we respond to the things that happen in our life. Take the lesson from these lepers thousands of years ago to see that God is looking for us to respond in a way where we can stay on that, that path and we can bless him, honor him, and see the blessings in our own life as well. I wanna pray for all of us today. I wanna pray, you're welcome to come to the altar if you wanna just spend some time up here too. I'm gonna pray for every single one of us. I'm gonna ask you to bow your heads with me as we pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you today for your word. We know your word is true. We know your word is awesome. God, we're standing on it today. Lord, we're desperate for you. God, I pray for everyone in this room, everyone online, everyone listening to this right now, Lord, that you would reveal in our heart how desperate we really are for you, that we are spiritual lepers that we're starving and that we're under siege by the enemy without you, Jesus. But you, you not only give us the mercy, but man, the blessings, the overflowing that we experience in our life spiritually because of who you are, God, is such an amazing blessing. And we thank you for that today, God. 
Lord, we come before you humbly, saying we need you. God, would you help us to share this wonderful spiritual food with those that you put in our life? We know that you have put people in our life for that reason, so that we can give them the food that we have more than enough of. There's more than enough to go around. God, give us a heart for the lost people that are in our life, because I know you brought those people into our life for that reason. Help us, Lord, not to, to miss the opportunity that you've given us to be your hands and feet to the people in our life. And Lord, where we have experienced doubt, and when we experience doubt, God, would you help us not to allow that doubt to have a vote? God, help us to learn to recognize it, to minimize it, and to remember what you've done in our life and where you have brought us, God. We thank you for it today, Lord. Church, just, I just speak to those of you here today that do not know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. If you're here today and he is not the Lord of your life, can I encourage you that I believe you're here for a reason? I believe God brought you here today. I'm, I'm naive enough to believe that God actually ordained for you to be here today or to be listening online today because I believe with all my heart that he died for you, that you are spiritually leprous and starving because we all are without it. And if that's you today, he tells us in his word, all we have to do is believe that he is who he says he is, that he came, that he lived, and that he died on a cross for our sins, for your sins, and for mine, and three days later rose from the dead. He since ascended back into heaven. He's interceding for us, and he says, if you will confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, that your name will, you will be saved, and your name will be written in the Lamb's book of life, where you will get to spend eternity with him, not separated from him. So do not leave this place today without committing your life to him. Step out in faith today to make him the Lord of your life. He is so worth it. Anyone around you here that has given their life to Jesus will say it's the best decision they've ever made, bar none. We don't even know what number two is because number one is so much better than all the others. It's such a wonderful choice. And he will reveal himself to you if you do that. And if you need to talk to someone before you leave, we'll be up here up front. I'll be more than happy to pray with you if you'd like. But we want to give you that opportunity. Church, just pray today for you that God will bless and keep each and every one of us for his glory and for our good. And it's in Jesus' precious name we pray. And everyone said, amen, amen. amen. Can we give it up for God one more time? Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Praise God. We serve a wonderful God. He really is amazing.